Well, over the past several weeks, we have been doing a walk through the theme of new creation. And we've done that because we have been stretching out the truth, the implications of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And within the church year, the season of Easter ends with Pentecost Sunday. And next week will be Trinity Sunday. And then it launches out into what they call ordinary time. So that's what awaits us, ordinary time. But uh, today, today is Pentecost Sunday, where we remember uh, the gift of the Holy Spirit that has once and for all been poured out upon Christ's church by the risen and ascended Lord Jesus Christ. That as Paul says to the Ephesians, that the one who descended is the one who also ascended. And when he ascended, he led a host of captives, uh, uh, captivity captive, he says, and then gave gifts to men. He poured out from his place of the of ascension there at the right hand of the Father, where all authority in heaven and earth had been given rightfully to him. The first thing, if you will, his first act of power and authority was to pour out upon the church the gift of his Holy Spirit, fulfilling what he said in John 14, and he would say again in John 16, before he went to the cross, I'm leaving you, but it's actually good that I go. Unbelievable words, words that if you were one of the disciples, you would most certainly not have believed. How can it be good that you will leave us? But he says, it is good for you that I go, because if I go, I will send to you the Spirit, and I will no longer dwell with you, but by the Holy Spirit, I will dwell in you. And so this is what we celebrate. It was 50 days after the resurrection of our Lord that Jesus, having ascended, now poured out the Spirit. And there in Jerusalem, in the upper room, the disciples with a host of others gathered, doing as they were told in Acts 1, waiting until the Holy Spirit had come upon them. And then they were to go be his witnesses. There in the upper room, you will remember the story from Acts 2, a sound like a mighty rushing wind, so loud that it brought crowds to gather to hear what the heck was going on, all the racket that was going on in the upper room. Crowds gather around, and the rushing wind, the pneuma, in the Greek, that word pneuma means wind, and it means breath, and it means spirit. All of that is the one word. And the great breath of God uh, just poured out of heaven upon the church, and Flickering flames of fire danced above the heads of all who were in that room, representing that, that pillar of fire from the wilderness wandering, now divided out and split and landing on each person's head, representing the fact that each of us, as the people of God, are the dwelling place of God. We are the tabernacle. We are the temple of God. We are now the altar of a living sacrifice with the flame of God burning upon us. Uh, we're candlesticks and lampstands. If you think of the book of Revelation, uh, the church of God is in now and in us all, and we are part of it. And then, of course, they began to speak with tongues. They began to speak in languages that people who had gathered from all over the world and who were divided by multiple languages were now somehow united together in their diversity to hear the gospel being proclaimed by these Galileans as they were proclaiming the word of God in languages they did not know. But this was the gift of the Holy Spirit by which God was demonstrating his reunification, if you will, his reconciliation of the world, undoing the curse and bringing his people out of every nation, every tribe, and unifying them 
around Jesus Christ, the King of Kings. That's what we celebrate today. We celebrate the remembrance of that day. And so for us, the Holy Spirit is God dwelling in us, God dwelling with us. Emmanuel is no longer merely the God-man walking around in our community. Believe it or not, brothers or sisters, what we're doing right here is Emmanuel. Emmanuel is God in us by the gift of the Spirit sent from the King of Kings. This is the shocking reality of new covenant. This is the shocking reality of new creation. So I want us to continue that theme of new creation, but now into Pentecost, because Pentecost, all the different things we've talked about with new creation, if you go back and listen to those sermons or reflect on the texts that we've uh, that we've thought about, the gift of Pentecost is the first fruits of new creation. Paul says this to the Ephesians in Ephesians 1. He says, the Holy Spirit into which we and by which we have been sealed is the down payment of our inheritance. That is, do you, do you know why you can be certain that you will have eternal inheritance with the Lord Jesus Christ? Because you have the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit has changed you, has given you a new heart. And the fruit of the Spirit within you is like a down payment given to you by God as an assurance, a confirmation of the full inheritance of the immediate presence and glory of God that you will enjoy for all eternity. Remember, we thought about this last week in Revelation. Remember, there, there will be no temple there. Why? Because God and the Lamb will be its temple. You remember last week, the, the bride, the new Jerusalem in, in the heavenly kingdom, the, which again was a vision, not a photograph, so don't get lost in that, by this cubic city that is as wide and deep as it is high, whatever that means. Again, don't try to picture it. Understand it. It's the holy of holies. The whole city, the whole bride, the whole church is the Holy of Holies, where God dwells in our midst, we with Him, seeing Him face to face. And brothers and sisters, the gift of the Holy Spirit is the first fruits of that. In a little down payment way, you are already beginning to enjoy that. You have intimate communion with God in your very person, in your very soul. We have this communion with God. This is what we rejoice in. In Pentecost. It's not just a historical act like, oh, remember that day when in Jerusalem a rushing wind? No, no, no. Yes, that's fine. That, that, was the, that was the moment the Holy Spirit came. But as each of us are united to Christ, we receive that same Spirit. And it is the first fruits of new creation. That's what we celebrate today. And we read of that in John 14, as Jesus promised this gift of the Spirit. But the text that we're looking at today is that text that Mark just read in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And as I mentioned, this is a challenging little text, as all of Paul's letters are challenging. For one, they are very long and extended arguments that anytime you try and jump into the middle of, you'll really, you'll, you find yourself, it's, it's, like, it's like jumping off a moving vehicle. You know, you hit the ground, you hit the ground running, and you're probably going to go, you know, keister over shoulders. It's going to be, you know, you're going to be rolling around because you're, you're in the momentum of, of an argument. And so very, very hard for us to do what we're about to do here. But nonetheless, it's my task. And, <laughs> and by the Spirit, I shall 
I shall accomplish it. But we're going to jump into the middle of an argument. Now, we're not in the middle of one argument. We're in the middle of a second book of, you know, of, of an argument that Paul has been battling with these Corinthians. And after Trinity Sunday, we're going to return. Next week, we'll think about the Trinity. Then we're going to return back to 1 Corinthians. So you'll remember some of that. But the Corinthian church is a troubled church. We know that. And by the time we get to 2 Corinthians, really the whole point of this book is he is, he is arguing for his apostleship. Like they are, they are beginning to question whether or not he's even a legitimate apostle. Uh, you know, these guys, these, these slicksters have come in. Uh, Jews have come in. Gentiles have come in. A bunch of people have come into this metropolis of, of Corinth and basically said, ah, Paul's not the real deal. And Paul is exasperated that he has to defend his apostleship again. It's ridiculous. That's why he begins the chapter. Do, do we begin again to commend ourselves? Or do we need, as some other epistles of, cond- of commendation to you or letters of commendation from, do, is that what you, we need? Do I, do I need to do this again? Do I need to try to send, get some references? Send you some references. Here's why Paul's a good, here's why you should listen to Paul. Do I need to like list out my resume for you? Do I really need to do this again? And so that's, you can feel that the tense tone here that we're in the middle of. But what Paul is going to do in this beautiful and wonderful and complicated chapter, what he's going to do is he's going to jump in and challenge these Judaizers particularly who are trying to weaken Paul's arguments by doing what they've done all along Paul's journeys, and that is pointing people back to the old way, back to the old covenant, back to the old creation, right? Back to Judaism that's going to elevate. You know, when Paul would go on his missionary journeys, groups would come in after him and say, well, to his converts, they say, oh, that's really great what Paul said. That's really nice that you all want to believe in God for Gentiles. That's really amazing. But, of course, you know, don't you? I mean, it's written right here in the book of Moses. Here's all the things you have to do. You know, you have to be circumcised. You have to avoid these foods. You're going to have a lot of changes you're going to have to make in your life. You know, do you really want this? And they'd say, well, golly, you know, yeah, we do want this. You know, Paul really committed it. We really do want this. And he'd say, okay, well, then here's all the things you're going to have to do. And so Paul would have to circle back around and go, no, 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 don't listen to them. Don't listen to them. You do not have to do any of these things. Here's all you need, the gift of the Spirit by which you are united to Christ. And if you have Christ, then you have all those things. And then the Jews would circle back around, and we have this, this dance, this awful dance. As Paul And, and sometimes it got violent, as you know. Uh, they would arrest Paul, or they would stone Paul, or they would chase him out of town. It's got, it got pretty vicious. So Paul is dealing with this now with the Corinthians. And of course, this is not a problem that we're wrestling with today, but it's good for us to hear because it's a reminder to us of what we have. I don't think any of you are really tempted to go back to the ways of Judaism and, and back into the old, you're not, you're not being wooed back to the old covenant, I don't think. And so this, this text is not going to serve us that way. But what this text should do, is remind us, in light of all of our talks on new creation, what you do have. And what you have is shocking and amazing and beautiful. It is the thing that ultimately Moses longed for, but couldn't see. But if he could have had it, he would have given anything for it. 
right? It's the new covenant. And Paul makes this argument here. So if we jump down to verse 7, so Paul has, is, is wrestling with these people who are tempting the Corinthians to think that real religiosity is going and keeping the law of Moses. Real religiosity is kind of going back and doing it the way the Jews do it. I mean, in some sense, it would be an amazing text to think through if you have a Jewish friend. I mean, Paul's words would, 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 it would be such a challenge to think this through with them when you hear the way Paul, who, by the way, loved Moses, he was a Hebrew of Hebrews, right? A Pharisee of Pharisees saying what he's about to say here. And what does he say? He is going to contrast, and here's where we just got to work through some of these arguments, and we'll have to spend more time on this. I, I, I hope it'll be a good and rich Sunday school for us today for those who stay, but he's setting a contrast between the old covenant and the new. And as a Jew, he loved the old covenant. Moses is wonderful and beautiful for what he did. But what he did, compared to what Christ did, is like comparing death to life. Moses was glorious in as much as you could be glorious in the Old Covenant. But when you compare the glory of Moses to the glory of Christ, it is like comparing damnation to glory. As glorious as Moses was, as glorious as the Old Testament was, in comparison to the glory of Christ, it is like comparing heaven to hell. That's how far apart they are. It's like, I've told you before about that thing R.C. would do with us, R.C. Sproul, in class where he'd, he'd, he'd say, you know, when he was trying to explain how righteous Christ is, right? And he would say, pick, you know, pick the most evil person in the world you can think of. Of course, it's always Adolf Hitler. And so we put him, he'd say, all right, you go stand in that corner of the room and say, okay, let's, you know, that person represents Jesus Christ. You're in that corner. Now pick the most virtuous human being you can think of, you know, and, and Mother Teresa, whoever, you know, and it just a person who's given their life and, and, now, where on the scale are they, you know? And of course, eventually the person will be like sitting on top of Hitler's shoulders because, you know, compare, if you took a scale of comparing, you know, Mother Teresa and me and Adolf Hitler, oh yeah, the gaps are very wide, right? But when you put Jesus in the mix, as virtuous as Mother Teresa is, in comparison to Christ, she basically is Hitler, you see. That's how, that's how you have to understand the righteousness of Christ. And as glorious as Moses is, and wow, is he glorious. Do you remember the text we read in Exodus 34 this morning? Moses is on top of that mountain, speaking face to face, if you will, with God. And when Israel is down below worshiping the golden calf, God says to Moses, get out of here. I'm going to kill them all. And Moses intercedes for them. He, he begs God, no. He says, please, don't do it. Remember your covenant promises. What are the Egyptians going to say? Lord, if need be, take me. Take me on, and, and spare them. This is Moses. Wow. And the Lord loves Moses. And he actually says, Moses, because I love you, I will spare those people. Moses goes down, breaks the stones, kills a bunch of them in righteous judgment, 
and then comes back up. When he comes up the mountain, God says to him, okay, Moses, remember when I told you I'm not going to kill them? I'm not going to kill them. And I'm, you, the only reason I'm not killing them is because you asked me. You interceded. You mediated. They don't even know. Remember, they're down, if you remember, they're down below going, as for this Moses, we don't know how long he's going to be up there. We don't even know what became of him. They despise Moses. Yet Moses is the only reason they're not smoked. Moses is the only reason that they're still dancing around down there in their sin. Because Moses, this Moses, is up on top of the mountain pleading their case like a high priest. That's how beautiful Moses is. Moses is actually saying to God, take me instead of them. What? And God says, no, I'm not going to do that. But I'm not going to kill them either because I love you, Moses, and because you've asked me. But I'm not going to go with you to the promised land. I'm going to give you the promised land, but I'm not going with you. And Moses said, okay, well, I take it all back then. Kill us all. Because if, if, if you're not going to go with us, it's not worth it. And the Lord says, okay, I will go with you. I will go with you. Now, get a pen. We're going to write some stuff down here. And, and so they, they, he, you know, and so Moses has to chisel this all out again, the, the, the commandments again, and the Lord is going to go with them. Moses, that's how awesome Moses is. How faithful Moses is. How glorious he is. How important he is. So Moses comes down the second time from the mountain, having all these commandments given to him graciously a second time. Moses comes down the mountain and he says, guys, now I hope we've all learned our lesson here. And while he's talking, everybody's like backing up away from him and they're, they're wincing. And Moses is like, guys, what's going on here? Yeah. And they're like, Moses, we can't, we can't even look at you. You're like beaming. Your face is shining like the sun. We can't, we can't look at you. It's like, it's like I had one of my students the other day where we uh, they got a plaque after the boys won the baseball section title and I was standing talking to some of these goofballs. Uh, they just took their team picture and then they took the plaque, you know, and they, they found the sun with it. And so I'm talking, I keep getting this shot in my eye of like glaring light. And I look over and the three, you know, three goofball high schoolers just, <laughs> You know, they're just like shooting that ray right in my eyeball uh, just to bug me, you know. And that's like, and you can't even, you can't, I'm like, who is, who's doing that? Who do I need to suspend from school? It's like, I can't, <laughs> just can't see who that is over there. But that, that's when it's like looking at Moses. I mean, you're looking at him and it's so radiant that they can't look at him. This is the glory that Moses is given just from being in the presence of God. And it's an amazing reflection of the covenant he brings to them. It's glorious. It's, it's, a, it's an image of his ministry. He is glorious by the power and grace of God. Ah, but there's one problem. The glory that is radiating off his face fades. Every day diminishes, gets a little less bright. Moses notices this, so he puts a veil over his face. Now, when we see in Exodus 34, Moses puts a veil over his face, we're inclined to think, well, he puts a veil because it's, people can't look at him. They're, they're doing this all the time. So he puts a veil so people can look at him. But that's not what Paul says. Paul says the reason he puts a veil over his face 
because he didn't want the people to see that it was fading. The glory was there, but every day it got a little less, a little less, a little less. And then he'd go in to meet with God in the tent of meeting, and he'd pull the veil up and, you know, he'd, he'd, he'd just like recharge. And then he'd go out and, and it'd be just beaming. And then he'd put the veil. You don't want to see it's fading away day unto day. Then he'd go in and, you know, the batteries get charging. And he'd come out radiating again. And Paul is saying, this is a picture of the entire old covenant. Glorious, but temporary. Glorious, but fading away. Really glorious in for what it was worth, but fleeting and fading. It was never meant to last, nor could it last. Even Moses himself, his ministry didn't last. The people all did die in the wilderness, just not then. But they didn't make it into the promised land. Even Moses couldn't get it done. Moses himself couldn't go in. Moses is glorious, like Mother Teresa is righteous. But Mother Teresa is basically Hitler compared to Jesus. And Moses, as glorious as he is, is basically damn. His covenant was basically damnation compared to the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the point that Paul is making. And it's almost all contained, his whole, his whole assessment of the Old Testament. And now, again, why are we saying this? Not because we're tempted to go back to Moses, but I want you to realize what you have. In verse 7, he's speaking about the Old Covenant here. But if the ministry of death, which he just said was basically what the, the law gave, what Moses could do. This is the best Moses could do is buy you another 40 years. That's, that's all he could do until you died in the wilderness. That's all Moses could do. And so he compares Moses' glorious ministry to a ministry of death. But if the ministry of death written and engraved on stones, this is the best Moses could do, was give you a law book and go, here, do your best. He could give you stones carved by God or later by him and say, here, keep it. That's all Moses could do. And it was glorious. But compared to Christ, it's basically a ministry of death. This is not what Jesus does. Jesus doesn't do it again. Jesus does something infinitely greater. But if the ministry of death written and engraved on stones was glorious, so that the children of Israel could not even look steadily at the face of Moses because of the glory of his countenance, which glory was fleeting. They couldn't even look at that glory and it was fading. It was passing away. How will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious? Do you, Corinthians, do you, Affirmation, know what you have in Christ? The ministry of Moses was a ministry of stone, laws external to you, telling you be good. 
What you had in Moses was a glory, no doubt, but a fleeting one, one that ultimately could not sustain. It couldn't even really get them to the promised land. The, the glory fading on his face was a picture of his whole ministry. He couldn't get it done. It was ultimately a ministry of condemnation. He says that next. Verse 9, for if the ministry, he just called it a ministry of death. Remember, these are glorious things, but compared to Christ, it's death. Is it a ministry of condemnation? It gave you the, it gave you the sacrificial system. It gave you a priesthood. It gave you communion with God. And yet he calls it a ministry of condemnation. For if the ministry of condemnation had glory, the ministry of righteousness exceeds much more in glory. So the ministry of Moses was a ministry of stone tablets. The ministry of Moses was a glory that was fleeting. The ministry of Moses was a ministry of condemnation, and ultimately the ministry of Moses was a ministry of death. All it could do was give you a delay, but then in the end it couldn't save you. It couldn't get you there. What was the ministry of Moses about then? What the heck is the point of that? A really beautiful path to death. Like, why would God do that? And the answer is because it was pointing to the Lord Jesus Christ. It was never meant to be your home. I heard somebody give a good illustration of this, and I hadn't ever, this is not a metaphor that ever came to my mind, but that it's like Moses, what Moses does for us, what the covenant of Moses, what the Old Testament does for us is provide a really rickety bridge over a very deep chasm that leads to Christ. That's what the Old Testament was meant to do. It was meant to get you to Christ. It was meant to point you there. But what it was never, ever, ever meant to be was a place to build a home. You know, you don't build a house on the rickety bridge. You scurry across that thing as fast as you can. It's rickety and cracking and, you know, dust is falling and the ropes are ripping and, you know, just think of like any Indiana Jones movie. It's like you get across that thing as fast as you can because on the other side is Christ. The rickety bridge was never meant to be a foundation for the home. It was never meant to be a place you settle down and build your home. And yet this is what the Jews do. They make the rickety bridge their home, but it's a ministry of death. It will crumble. It will fall. It was meant to get you to Christ. Verse 11, for if what is passing away, here he's going through all the elements of the old covenant. It's a ministry of death. It's on stone. It's condemnation. It's passing away. For if what was passing away was glorious, what remains is much more glorious. Therefore, since we have such a hope, we use great boldness of speech, unlike Moses, who put a veil over his face so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the end of what was passing away. See, he didn't want them to see this glory is awesome, but it's fleeting. Don't look here. Don't look here. Don't be attracted to this. Look away. Look away. Ultimately, look to Christ. But their minds were blinded, for until this day, the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament because the veil is taken away only in Christ. 
What he's saying is that anyone who then reads the Old Testament and doesn't see Christ is like, it's veiled. They can't see the real glory. You're still looking into a veil, if you will. But their minds were blinded, for until this day the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament because the veil is taken away in Christ. But even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil lays on their heart, lies on their heart. Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. So what is Paul saying? Moses' ministry was a ministry of stone. He gave you stone tablets. Do you know what you have, brothers and sisters? You have the law engraved not on stone, but on your heart. You, says Ezekiel, says Joel in his new covenant, were given a new heart. Not laws outside of you that told you, be good, try your best. But a change on the inside. You were given by the gift of the Spirit, now a changed nature by which you long to do the very things that God has commanded you. No longer a ministry of stone, but a ministry of spirit. No longer a ministry of condemnation, but a ministry of transformation. But we all, verse 18, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror. See, we're not looking direct. One day, brothers and sisters, you're going to look right into the face of Jesus. That, that glory that we're going to see here in a second goes from glory to even greater. It gets brighter every day, not diminishing, if you can imagine it. But right now we look as like in a mirror. I, I, I'm not looking directly, but by the Spirit, when I read the Word, when I look into the Word, it's as if I'm seeing Christ in a mirror. But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image. We're not being condemned any longer by this covenant, but this covenant is changing us. We are becoming more and more and more like Christ as we pour ourselves into his word, as we look not at Moses, but at Jesus. Moses couldn't change you into anything. But when we look at the glory of Jesus, it is changing us into his image. So not a ministry of stone, but a ministry of the spirit in our hearts. Not a ministry of condemnation, but a ministry of transformation. Not a fleeting glory, but a growing glory. <laughs> it has not even come to the mind of man what we will become. Think about the glory of Jesus. When he came out of the tomb, he was beautiful. But look at him in Revelation 1. Now granted, it's a vision, not a photograph. But the image of Jesus, the ascended Lord Jesus Christ, mighty and awesome, burning bronze for feet and eyes of fire and hair of white wool, a voice like the sound of many rushing waters, one before whom somebody doesn't say, hey, can I touch your wounds like Thomas does to the risen Lord Jesus, but with the ascended Lord Jesus, whose glory grows unto greater glory, John falls down like one dead. He can't even look at him. He just down. 
The glory of Jesus is not diminishing. It is growing from glory to glory. And so all of us who look at him do not receive a fleeting glory, but a growing glory, if you can imagine such a thing. And so will it be for you in heaven in the new creation. If you have the first fruits now in the spirit. But brothers and sisters, it is going to grow and grow and grow in you for all eternity. And of course, it is not ultimately a ministry of death, but a ministry of life. Moses couldn't get them there. They all died in the wilderness. But brothers and sisters, the Lord Jesus Christ, it's not even, it's not even like, well, Jesus did what Moses couldn't do. He's a little, he's better than Moses. No, no it's not. Moses is Hitler, right? Mother Teresa is Hitler compared to Jesus. Moses, Moses got them a little further in the wilderness and they died. Even Joshua got them into a land and they died. Jesus defeated death, not just Canaanites. Jesus defeated death itself. This is his ministry. He gives us the chance to drink from the streams of living water and never go thirsty again. This is the glory that we have and the first fruits of that glory we celebrate today on Pentecost. The Spirit dwelling in you is the down payment of this glorious ministry. A ministry that is infinitely more glorious than you and I can even contemplate and one that will grow from glory to glory, if you can imagine it, for all eternity. Rejoice, brothers and sisters, in what you have now. Rejoice in Christ, your ultimate mediator. Rejoice in the gift of the Holy Spirit. For it is in and through him that you have Christ, and in Christ all this inheritance is yours. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Paul's challenging argument but one that provides much food for thought and for contemplation and which is the source of great joy. For we look around at many things that are glorious and good, but they are all fleeting. They are all fading. They are all diminishing, decaying, and dying. But we have the Spirit. And in the Spirit, there is life and renewal and reconciliation and glory that grows to greater glory for all eternity, and it has begun in us now. Strengthen our hope. Guard us from anchoring ourselves to dying things. Though we're not tempted to anchor ourselves to the dying covenant of Moses, we are tempted to anchor ourselves to the dying old creation, to put our treasure in things where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal. But Father, by your Spirit, anchor our souls to that eternal glory, the glory given to us by the Lord Jesus Christ, our King of kings, by the gift of your Holy Spirit. For it's in the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.